Welcome to the Who Shuffled Tabletop Podcast. Episode 9, Rob Davio. Hello, I'm Tom Tanner, and welcome to another episode of Who Shuffled. I'm joined by my partner in crime, Ryan Hutchison, and we have a very special guest with us today, Mr. Rob Davio. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing great. Yeah, we are good. For the listeners out there that might not be familiar with Rob's body of work, he is one of the top board game designers of our time and has quite the resume. He has brought us titles like Heroescape, Betrayal at House on the Hill, many versions of Risk. He is most famous for his legacy games, Risk Legacy, Pandemic Legacy Seasons 1 and 2, which are both in the Board Game Geek Top 40. He is currently working with Restoration Games and is here with us to talk about their next project that's hitting Kickstarter tomorrow, Fireball Island. Rob, we're really excited about having you here. I am, I am very happy to be here. So where, where are you calling from? I'm trying to place the accent. I get Georgia from it. That's, that's right. We're very South Georgia. So, yeah. I have a good friend. Uh, we worked at Hasbro for years who's from Georgia near the Alabama border. And I can, uh, I can hear the same accent. What accent, right? Yeah, what accent? <laughs> yeah, we got you on the show today to promote Fireball Island. I've been following you and Justin on Twitter, doing the diary uh, you know, of the making, kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff. I've really enjoyed that. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? The diary has been fun to write. You know, we're, we're starting a Kickstarter on April 3rd. Uh, that's in the future from when we're talking right now. I don't know if it'll be the present, the past, the future from when people are listening to this. And, you know, part of the being on Kickstarter is you have to bring the crowd to crowdfunding, right? You have to get people's attention and know they're coming. So Fireball Island has been something that a lot of people have been looking forward to from our company and in general since it was in print, um, oh gosh, like 30 30 years basically and so we started doing design diaries a couple weeks ago and sort of teasing it and showing it. and it's been a lot of fun to sort of see where people are connecting and where we're building excitement and where people are like yeah that's fine and uh mostly we've kept everyone a couple people rage quit <laughs> a couple people are like nope this isn't the game i wanted um but you know uh i don't think we would have a hundred percent success rate so it's um it's been a fun way to sort of build discussion and start talking to people back and forth of whether what we're doing is either what people expected or if they didn't expect it, are, are they at least interested in on board? Yeah, that's interesting that you brought that up. Did you know of anything right when you saw, right when you started on this project that you needed to change and like what things you knew that you wanted to preserve with the game? Yeah, just to give a little background, um, our company, which is pretty new. I mean, I've been designing games uh, for 20 years, a lot of it that with Hasbro and past six years on my own. But for the past couple of years, I've been also involved with um, restoration games. We're a new company and we take old games and we put them back into print, but we restore them. It's not just like, hey, let's just throw them back into print or let's just take these graphics from 1968. Uh, so every one of our games starts with just exactly what you said, looking at the old game and going, okay, well, what works here? 
and what do we want to keep and what do we want to get rid of and how much do we want to change and i'm an age where i was a little old for fireball island when it first came out i was in high school and so i i don't have these visceral memories that a lot of other people have did you guys either of you play fireball island as a kid i don't know what your age are you might be too young for fireball island (laughs) yeah i think i was yeah i didn't play any yeah i've never played it or never seen it yeah yeah it was basically big from 80 86 to 89 yeah i was a baby yeah i was born in 87 so yeah oh come on now this is ridiculous (laughs) i was looking at colleges That's (laughs) that's fine i got a daughter in college now i'm used to feeling old so I, you know, I sat down and I looked at it and this game has this huge appeal for people like nostalgia from people who were born from like the late 70s through the early 80s. Like th- this was just like one of the games of their youth, right? It was just this passionate game. So I sat down to play it and we're like, well, what's fun and what's not? And the premise is great. It's a giant plastic island with marbles that roll down and knock over your figure as you're running around to collect treasure. And we're like, well, we're keeping all of that. Uh, and we kind of question just about everything else like the marbles didn't move quite as fast as i expected them to from how people talked about it and the island wasn't quite as tall as i thought it would be from how people talked about it so we're like how do we make it a little bigger a little faster how do we make the marbles a little bit more exciting and also gameplay has changed a lot in the past 30 years it used to be that people were definitely more comfortable with letting the game play them like you'd roll a die and just move whatever the I rolled told you that's what you do in Monopoly that's what you do in Parcheesi and sorry I mean some of these are cards instead of dice like you just yeah I don't know how far I'm gonna move let's let's just roll and that's just not how people do games these days so we're like well we got to give more control to the players on how they move and what they're doing because that's just more of how people like to play games now and then we just got to make the marbles more exciting and that was our starting point this was last June maybe when we were tackling this project and and it's been it has been an engineering and design challenge for the past nine ten months to get that initial insight into something that's currently sitting about 15 feet away from me as a hand-painted prototype on my dining room table nice have you ever worked with 3d board games before with the elevation and things like that uh, at my time at hasbro i worked with uh plastics quite a bit i mean hasbro is primarily a toy company that had a game division so mm-hmm. they had lots of experience about plastics and painted plastics and electronics and engineering and 3d and all of these things that just go into toys and in sort of like you know the hobby part of the game industry that we're in now is is very much sort of a niche right it's like not a lot of game companies are thinking about different types of plastic and and 3d so i was very aware of it and i had worked with it but i really underestimated how much the infrastructure of hasbro was doing things that i couldn't see until i tried to do it myself with fireball island went oh wait no this is a point where i would just ask someone in the engineering department and it would magically happen and i would sort of had to sort of recreate all of the people who i could go and ask at hasbro i had to find outside vendors right like i had to find 3d artists and people who molded clay and people who make vac trays and sort of build this virtual team to sort of recreate the the team that had been at my fingertips 
all of the last decade. So I both knew how to do it, but I didn't know exactly how to do it until I got started. And then I was like, I need to sort of figure some stuff out. So getting Fireball Island to work, getting it to fit in the box, getting it to be profitable, getting it to be a game has been kind of a cool design challenge. Like I like games that when I start, I wonder how exactly am I going to do this? And this is one of those games that was an engineering challenge. And it's been very satisfying to sit down today with the prototype on the actual material at the actual size with the actual marbles and be like, this is all working. Like there was always a little bit of, mm, is this going to work when it gets to his final form? And you, you think, you know, but it worked. Yeah, I bet that was a good feeling. Yeah. I, I could imagine working with 3D would be a, a challenge. Here's the thing is we started out going to um, this, this company, Game Trace. It's very well known in the industry. They do all sorts of vacuum form trace. This guy knows, he's a great guy. And um, he was doing everything in 3D and it helped us really figure out a lot of big design issues. But then we got to a point where we needed to do a lot of iteration really quickly and be able to test it in real time. And we had to kind of kind of backtrack and go to some old technology and take his work out of the computer and go to a different company called Design Innovation in Connecticut near where I live. And they took it and they built it out of clay where we could just roll marbles, roll marbles, move the clay, roll marbles, move the clay, cut the clay, do this, right? You had to be able to sort of do it in this real time where you're just able to see it. Now, clay doesn't roll like plastic, so you had to kind of adjust it, but it was interesting that we had to come out of the computer for a while once we had our initial thoughts and sort of the skeleton of what we were doing. The whole middle or, or second half more, um, we had to go back to some technology that people used 100 years ago and, and sort of do it in clay. And then when that was done, we had to find a company that would scan the clay back into a computer to send to China. I think one of my biggest insights is I expected to be in the computer the whole time. And ultimately, when you're rolling marbles down something, it's just much better to do it in the real world. Yeah, there's a lot more variability you can deal with. Yeah. Yeah, would you say that the board and the design was the most difficult part of the process? If not, was it something else? Uh, no, getting the board and the island to work was 90% of the design. Um, very early on, we knew that we wanted to get the, rid of the roll and move with the dice, and we wanted to go to a card-driven system. And we kind of figured out that we wanted to get away from a path and we were doing sort of 2D design, right? Like overhead pass, like, okay, if we move here and you play a card and it was, let's say a marble rolls this way and let's roll dice and say it has a 40% chance of hitting you. And it was really clunky, but at least let us know like, yeah, no, we think that this general idea would work. And then we put the game design or what most people think about is the game design on the shelf and said, that's there when we need it. And then we spent eight months figuring out how to make this amazing island physics engine that fit in a box and didn't cost too much and looked good and had enough paths and had enough choices and then when we were done that and we had it in clay we took our game design down off the shelf tweaked it based on the work we had done on the island and literally the we played half a game and said no no, no that's not quite working redid our thinking and then sat down and, and played a game start to finish and it worked great and the final score was in like was in like three points of each other and so most of our time was getting all of that physics to work but thinking in our head okay the gameplay's here it's on the shelf it has to fit this it has to fit this so that when we took it down it actually did what we wanted it to do 
it was a bit of it was a bit of luck that it worked as well as it did and we're still doing development on it now that we have the final island and the final trays and we've got stretch goals and expansions and all this stuff we are putting it through its paces and we have about another two months before it all has to be pencils down on all the graphics so i expect a few tweaks between now and then but by and large it's working just as we hoped yeah um what did you worry about changing too much with the game was there anything that you absolutely knew had to stay true to the original um we knew you had to be figures and you had to be knocked over with marbles and that had to be funny right and in some ways we were thinking of like the old looney tune cartoons (laughs) the faster and harder and weirder that you got your figure knocked over or the more unexpected the the better the game would be it was a very different mindset like i do these these longer more complicated legacy games and like these intricately moving parts and i've worked on you know games with 32 page rule books and stuff and so it's very hard to fight your instincts to add a lot of thinkiness into a game and just be like the focus of the game is running around and knocking your friends over with marbles and laughing at them sounds like a good time yeah yeah, no, and that's the thing. It's like you have to stay in that zone if you start getting carried away and you start thinking, well, but it also has a draft and there should be a deck builder and there's like different factions and suddenly there's a an army with a point system <laughs> and you're having like area control and like <laughs> supply lines, right? Like you're like, you, you've, you've missed, it's marbles knocking over people. Right. Um, yeah. that, that might be an interesting game on an island, but it's not Fireball Island. Yeah. Right. So there were a couple tent poles that we put down. So the game is about this, and it's about this, and it's about this, and everything else we can adjust. We don't want to necessarily throw it away, but we can uh, adjust it. And I, I think the biggest fear we had is that, and I, and I still have it, is that people have, uh, you're too young and I'm too old, but the people between us have such fond memories of this game but they're like hazy memories of being nine and playing it like on a rainy day at a, like your cousin's house and you only played it once, but it burned its way into your brain. Nothing against anyone who has those memories, but those memories are probably not accurate to what happened. So we're, so we're trying to design a game around people's like fuzzy, fuzzy is like not clear and like warm and fuzzy memories. Yeah. I think the good news is, I guess, is no one exactly who played it as a kid remembers exactly how it was played. Right. So if we like change it up, they're like, I don't remember how it was played, but this seems fun. And I remember the marbles getting knocked over and this looks cool. So let's do it. If we did that, then we did it right. You mentioned the stretch goals and the expansions and all that. And I've seen that on the tweets and things, but are you planning on this to be Kickstarter only? And are you going to have these expansions and everything available, you know, after the Kickstarter's over? Yeah, it's not Kickstarter only. Um, There are a few things that probably will be on Kickstarter only. That's the thing about a a Kickstarter campaign is, you know, there's what you're selling, then what you offer for free, and then what you add to the game just to make the game better that ultimately is in the retail version. And then when what you add on that people on Kickstarter can buy that you can't buy. So there's like all these moving parts and it becomes this very interesting, almost like, using a mixing board as a music producer like more of this and less of this and you know, like i always picture moving levers the game and the three expansions we have at launch will be available at retail when the game comes out and that'll be sometime let's say november could be a little earlier but november is likely 
Uh, it'll be a little bit more expensive when you buy it at retail, but there won't be shipping, so it'll be a little more expensive, but not greatly more. We have, as some of our stretch goals, uh, extra cards. It's a card-driven game. You have action cards and you have souvenir cards. So we are going to be putting, unlocking more cards that the Kickstarter people will get for free, but will be available like when we're at conventions. You can come up to the booth and say, oh, I'd like the Fireball Island Kickstarter pack, and you can buy it for... I don't know. It depends how big the game, the pack becomes, but 5 to $10. But then there's a couple things on there that probably would be something that you can only get on the Kickstarter, probably, but we're not quite sure. Like, relatively small. Like The figures are just one-color figures. Maybe there's a stretch goal. We say, oh, we're going to do painted figures. You'd have to pay $10, and you'll get a box. You'll get the regular color figures, and then you'll get... A box with painted figures in there and that's ten dollars extra and that may be available at retail after or it may be just too difficult for us to have inventory of several thousand boxes of painted figures and it's always it's always this delicate balance with kickstarter between trying to get people who are backing your game to really feel invested that what they're backing is something of value but at the same time not having someone four months later who didn't hear about it be like hey I miss this and I want it, you know, and then there, are, and it's, it's always this, this balance to try to make sure that you're not marginalizing any particular group. Yeah. You, you hear that all the time from fans, you know, just complain constantly about all these stretch goals and like they missed out on it. I'm like, we well, don't have to buy every single game. And if you wanted it, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's a weird sentiment, like love hate relationship with Kickstarter right now. Sure. Yeah, it is. If you don't offer stretch goals and people are like, well, I backed this and I didn't feel like you gave me anything more. And then if you have too many stretch goals, the people who didn't do it feel like they missed out. So we think we've got a pretty good plan in place, but we will know a lot more come April. Well, April 3rd, when it's starting, we probably won't know a lot more. But by April 6th or 7th, when we're into the campaign, we'll know if we've allocated the right amount of things at the right pace. Um, and then we'll just adjust it. And if, you know, we make a mistake, we'll say, sorry, we tried our best. Oh yeah. And this, this episode will be airing on the second. So Monday, so I guess the Kickstarter will be starting tomorrow. Starting tomorrow. So I'll say, Hey, tomorrow, after you've listened to this, head on over to Kickstarter and back Fireball Island. Um, what was the most fun part of the process? Uh, today going from a computer to clay, to a computer, to 3d printing, to looking at renderings on a screen and seeing all these pieces and seeing the gameplay and thinking, okay, I've done this for 20 years. I think this is all going to come together. And then what happened was the the way that the the trays are going to be made, and it's not one island. The people who know the original game, it's one big island. We've broken it into three medium islands, and you put two next to each other, and you stack the third one on top. It's like a little little pyramid, a little stacked cup thing. So it takes up about the same footprint as the original, but it's taller. Um, so these, these trays, they're going to mold in clear plastic and they're going to screen print it underneath it. So the top of it, you, you can't scratch it. You can play all you want. You can spill stuff and it won't because it's actually under the tray with clear over it, which I think is a very clever way to go. And we're looking at different finishes between matte and glossy. So you can see the graphics and it's not too reflective. So what they sent us, which we need for our Kickstarter and we need for our road show where in April, this game is going on tour. Um, they sent us clear trays. Basically, three invisible trays doesn't show very well. So we had printouts of the graphics, and my wife 
uh, did a lot of art in college and she works with uh, with me uh, in the company and she does production art and graphic design and she and I took over our dining room table and we spent about eight hours paint, hand painting this prototype as close as we could to the printout of the graphics is how it was going to look and after just all the stress and all the planning and all the tension to just sit kind of quietly with with my wife and some music and a cup of coffee and spend a day painting something was very much like raking a rock garden you know like in japan just this soothing use of hand and mind and then when it was done and i set it up i was like this game looks awesome like i usually am after 20 years like yep that's a good game good work this looks good like i keep walking over to it going this thing looks so cool um, so today was like just this big day of both having this calm moment right before the storm and making something with my hands, which always feels good. And then seeing, uh, nine months and just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours and meetings and driving and renderings and discussion sort of materialize and being able to roll the marbles down and be like, it all works, right? We've just got these few notes we're sending back to China. Like this needs to be a little higher and the marble gets stuck here and, can we tweak this? But I'm like, no, this, it worked. And it was such a wonderful feeling that today was the day that was the, uh, the most satisfying part of it so far. Now I'm hoping April 3rd on the Kickstarter will also be satisfying, but I'm, I'm, I'm one of those pessimistic northerners, right? Like, so winter is coming. Actually, winter's finally leaving, but well, I'm going to be back in as soon as it launches. So you got one copy sold. Oh, thank you. There we go. Yeah, we, we need a few more to make uh, to break even <laughs> more than more than two. Yeah, more than more than two. Uh, this is this is a game where there's been a lot of money that's been spent on uh, 3D. Oh, yeah. And sculpts and tools and prototypes, and everything like that. So um, I feel confident we will make our investment back. And I feel mostly confident we will get to the point we want to get to to sort of have our print run. And then after that, fingers crossed, it, it, it does all right. So there's a lot of, this is our number one requested game. So I think that there's a lot of uh, pent up passion for it. So as long as we did our job mostly right, we should be okay. So, so this was requested by the fans? Yeah, that, that's the thing. We're... Um, at Restoration Games, like we bring back people's childhood memories. And so, I mean, I have opinions and Justin has opinions and the four other people in the company have opinions, but uh, that's just six people, right? We need to talk to a lot more people. So if you go to our website, which is restorationgames.com, there's a, a, you just click on a link and you can be like, hey, can you please bring back blah? And we just tabulate that into a spreadsheet and we haven't done it in a couple months, but usually every couple months, Justin the, and I, we, they're like the two principal people in the company. We, we take out the spreadsheet and we look at it and try to project forward. Like, do we think we can get this one? Is this a good fit? Right. Is this, you know, like this only has three votes, but it, it you know, I think we could get this one. And so we, we kind of go back and forth. So this was when we announced the company, we said, Hey, go to our website. It was number one, Fireball Island, and then a big drop off to two. And, uh, so this, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to do right by the people who supported us early on. Yeah. Then I'm sure they're support you when this game comes out on Kickstarter. I mean, it seems like they're excited about it from all the things I've read. 
I think so. I, I tomorrow, um, which will have already happened by the time this airs, we're finally doing the 3D color version, and I'm going to start putting the pictures out that I was taking of um, my wife and I painting it. So it's going to go from renderings and sort of clay models, and people are going to see what this really looks like, and it'll be like five days before the Kickstarter. So hopefully everyone gives us the thumbs up and is like, ooh, that looks great. Now our painted version is a little a little brighter. We're painting with paint, so it's a little more like red and green, right? Then the, then the final one will have some subtlety to it, but it looks cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure it does. You said that Fireballing was the most requested, and I know you've y'all had some great success with Stop Thief. I think Downforce is probably your most popular one so far. Uh, Downforce is most popular. Stop Thief uh, is chugging along and being in ver- very pleasant. We just released a co-op mode, which I think people are really enjoying. And personally, I enjoy the co-op mode more than the original competitive mode. Uh, Indulgence, we knew before we went out, was going to be, it's a trick-taking game. It's kind of an advanced trick-taking game. We knew it was going to be uh, a quiet seller, which it was. Like, it sold fine. Um, but for people who like trick-taking games, they have particularly liked this. It was kind of our good luck charm. There's a long story I won't get into, but I, it that game got me to be a gamer and actually got me my job as a game designer. And I said, we just have to do this. It would be bad, bad mojo not to be doing this game in our line. So we did it, and uh, I'm happy we did do it. So you said Fireball Island was the number one by far. I guess I was going to ask what took so long, or is is it just the process of you know getting the IP, or like how how does that do y'all look at games first, choose one that you want, and then try to get the license, or how does that process work? Uh, it's a a bit of different things. Sometimes we just thinking think of a game we want and see if it's available. Some are sort of immediately off the list because we just know the rights won't be available. Justin. Uh, Jacobson, who's the president of the company, is a lawyer by trade. And so what what would deter a lot of people, he's like, oh, I know how to do this. Like he's, you know, finding people and getting a deal and working contracts and stuff is what he's been doing for 20, 25 years. And so when Fireball Island came, I was like, well, I'll try to figure out how to get the rights. And it took him about a year and we had to wait and we weren't sure that we were going to get it. And, you know, we had meetings at Toy Fair and there was another publisher who was interested, but they weren't sure they wanted to do it. And we had to kind of wait for them. And then we had to prove as a new company, not really prove, we had to sort of do the normal convincing you would do in negotiations. Hey, we're a small company and we're a new company, but we know how to do this. And um, and so we got the rights probably last June. We announced it at Gen Con in August, at which point we had been you know, kind of starting the design process. Now we, we thought we'd be done before Christmas and it was just a big project. So it took us a little longer and, you know, it took us till March to get it done. Yeah. I was looking on your website and I see one other game listed here. Um, Dinosaur Tea Party. Is that a new project? Dinosaur Tea Party. Yeah. That's a, that's a new project. That'll be out at Gen Con. There was a, an old game called Who's It from 1976 that we redid as Dinosaur Tea Party. It is just a silly little uh, kids game that uh, we are finding has surprising traction with adults. Um, You are a dinosaur, you're British, and you're at a tea party, and it's kind of like a multiplayer guess who, where you're just trying to ask people like, do they have a hat or did they bring a pet or are they drinking or are they eating or do they have stripes? And you're trying to just use deduction to figure out their name because you're mortified you've forgotten people's name and you're too English to ask. Um, 
And so you are a dinosaur with an English accent at a tea party playing a game of social deduction. And there's a long story of how we came to do this, but there was some interest at the time that Target might be interested. And um, ultimately they passed for a variety of reasons. Like they just, and and so, but we had the game done and we had some interest and we're like, let's just put it out. Um, Which is, it's a little, I mean, certainly to go from uh, our first $20 game was Indulgence and our second one, is dinosaur tea party is a big shift in terms of brain space that you use uh but what we discovered at a trade show last last couple weeks ago gamma which is all industry people we were trying to show off our new downforce tracks and i was like yeah yeah downforce love it but let's play dinosaur tea party and they were sitting down and using just horrendous british accents we don't ask you to have good british accents in fact you're not required to use them it's just kind of expected that you put on just these pretentious posh airs. Um, it, it was a name that I threw out and the team thought it was interesting. And then we had a picture of a dinosaur drinking tea and we're like, no, we just got to make this. Like sometimes you're making games and you just have to do silly fun stuff because that's what games are about. If you don't mind, we're going to maybe ask some questions about your background a little bit because I know a lot of people that listen to our show are new to gaming in general. Yeah had some questions here from some listeners that got submitted but um, what did you do before game design and what led you to game design well it's one of those things that when you view your history in reverse you know you can see a lot of threads i was doing everything to become a game designer but it was not like a clear path like i was did a lot of role playing um part of the first uh, generation first edition D role playing i was not like in the early 70s, more like the early 80s. Like I wasn't, because just because of my age, but I was role-playing and I was actually going to game conventions at age 13 and running a table as a GM for adults like D&D. Like I'm just like, I'm like, hey, I'll, I'm just going to run a D&D session and just like rolling with it and not even knowing that that should be daunting. And... Um, was really into comic books and really into storytelling and really into like math and really into writing and played a ton of computer games. And so I was like just glomming all these pieces that in retrospect were just perfect training to become a game designer, but it wasn't like a plan. And so I actually thought when I was in college that I was going to be a television sketch comedy writer or a comedy writer. And I interned with David Letterman and I hung out at Saturday Night Live and I hung out with the kids in the hall back in the, yeah, like partied with, yeah, party with them in Toronto and like hung out with Mike Myers, like watched some of the sketches I had taped and gave me feedback and stuff like that. And I was all set. And then I started working in and around television. I'm like, this is an awful industry. I don't like New York or Los Angeles. So I was 22 and went, wait a minute, and uh, and just kind of bailed on it and ended up doing advertising writing for about five years, which again was another thing that sort of set me up for game design because it taught me to think about like what's the most important part and how do you communicate things effectively and how do you tell a story to someone who doesn't necessarily know they're being asked to hear a story, right? You're driving down the road and there's a billboard. You've got like five words to say something. Right. Like that's not much time. Or if you're doing a 60 second radio commercial and someone's busy, how do you get their attention? So it was like just another way for to sort of add to the ability to to be a a good game designer. 
And then I I wrote an article for Dragon Magazine, which is probably a magazine that predates the two of you, but it was the uh, it was the Dungeons and Dragons magazine that ran from the late seventies to probably early two thousands. And I wrote an article. I pitched some articles and they took one and I wrote it. I made like a hundred bucks and it was more satisfying than anything I'd done in advertising in five years, including some awards I had won. I mean, minor awards. And so I'm like, I'm in the wrong business. And so I thought I'm going to, I'm going to keep being an advertising writer but four days a week and do a lot of freelance. And on Fridays, I'm going to write role-playing stuff because I really want to do game stuff. And around that time, Hasbro just happened to be looking for a, a game designer or a writer and I threw my hat in the ring and had the interview of a lifetime. And suddenly I was a full-time board game designer. Boom. Like full-time, five days a week with benefits, go to an office and make games for a living. And it was just like a one in a million chance. Now, as I said, I had actually lived my life for the first 28 years up to being able to nail that interview, but it wasn't a conscious thing. Right. It was just sort of, oh, I'll go in and I can maybe write some boxes or help edit rules or something. And they're like, well, how do you feel about designing games? And I went, hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. This sounds really interesting. And I just started, I just started talking and it turns out I, I had all the right qualifications that they were looking for. I just, there was no, like, there was no board game geek. There was no gaming scene. Yeah. So it's not like now where you can sort of put together a body of work or even get a degree in it. I just sort of did it by accident and then was in a place where I could say, hey, look, I can do all these things you're asking for and um, and then got the job. Yeah, that sounds like a like a dream, dream come true. Yeah, it was just fluky because it was it was in I was in Boston and my wife was out of town and I was looking through the classified ads like, well, maybe I'll look for some jobs to be a copywriter because it was pouring rain and I didn't feel like going outside. So I read the entire newspaper back when they had newspapers cover to cover, including the classified ads. And I just saw like Parker Brothers Hasbro looking for a copywriter. I'm like, sure, I'll drop him an email. I mean, any one of those things could have not happened and I never would have had this career. So you mentioned playing role playing games. Did you play other games? Uh, um board games as a kid or were you mainly focused on the role-playing part Uh, my mom is a big sort of traditional game player so i grew up not only with the traditional games like the monopolies and the scrabble but a lot of the early handheld electronics at the time like simon and um a little bit more offbeat for the time for the late 70s you know sort of games there were other smaller game companies which have either been bought out or gone out of business so i had a little bit off the beaten track stuff, but I also was really big into puzzles, both jigsaw puzzles and solving puzzles and sort of like electronic handheld uh, game puzzles. And then I got a computer at a young age and played a lot of computer games. Then I got into role-playing games, but there were always the, the, the store that sold role-playing games would also have like tactical miniatures games or Blood Bowl or something. So I was around it, but... I would a lot of you have to understand in the early 80s in central Maine there really weren't games there weren't like it wasn't a robust board game industry so unless I was going to be playing hardcore war games from Avalon Hill it was pretty much the role-playing games or uh, Commodore 64 computer games were kind of my only options yeah 
Now, now, when you do play board games today, do you do you have a game that you play the most? You usually bring just pull down without even really thinking. I I doubt I play the same game twice. It's a little bit because I like learning games and seeing what they're doing, and a little bit of it is a professional uh, requirement, right? There's so many games coming out and so many designers and so many people doing good work. I try to play the games that people are talking about and sometimes I get months and months or years behind and then I spend a whole weekend and get 12 games and, you know, just ah, try to play them all. Overload. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times when I have free time, I'm bringing one of my prototypes to the table and begging people like, hey, do you mind if we just, I know you played it before, but I made it better, right? Uh, but I, I, I went tonight and just played a, a published game and um, it's friends of ours who do a lot of play testing, and I, I, we we're all tired, and I knew I didn't have a lot of time, and I didn't have a prototype ready. So we just, they had a version of Ticket to Ride that they had bought a while ago, and they're like, "You want to try this?" I'm like, "Yeah, I haven't played this Ticket to Ride. I played other Tickets to Ride, but I haven't played this one." So we just played that. I don't know if I'll play that one ever again, but now I've played it. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, I know that's how Tommy is, but I, I like to play the same games over and over. But I can see from a developer point of view, you really want to get as much as much in as you can yeah that that's definitely my problem is you know i want to play the newest best game and as soon as i play it i want to play it 10 times but there's all these other newest best games that i need to play as well so there's so like you said there's so many games today it's like like it's so hard to keep up and there's always something else coming out yeah you can't possibly play them all there's too many so it's it's like you said it's a mixture between trying the new stuff and also you know, revisiting a game that, you know, you spend so much time the first time you play, like learning the rules and what's a good strategy and did I do well? And if you never play it again, you never get that sense of, okay, I know what I did right. I know what I did wrong. Now I want to do something different. So I do try to get back to games I, I like and play them two, three, four times, but it's rare that I would take a game down and, and play it 12, 15, 20 times, unless it's over a long period of time. Like I've probably played seven wonders you know 20 times but over 10 years we had a submitted question here from a listener ray and you kind of already answered it but i'm going to kind of add to the question but he said how is it that you effectively weave story into gameplay into all your games and i'm gonna assume that it's the background you just gave us i mean it sounds like story building and um, all your writing experience probably plays a lot into that but um i'm gonna kind of follow up that question with when you're when you're creating a game either when you're you know revisiting these games with restoration games or when you're adding legacy onto it or an original game are you are you thinking about the story first is that always your first go-to like theme and story or do you kind of work out mechanics and then uh well i it's it's actually a little neither of those i can tell you i i rarely if ever work on mechanics first it's not, I'm not a mechanics driven designer. I can do it, right? I can sit down and just with a deck of cards and dice and try to, and do it. But ultimately I'll get stuck like all game designers do. And I'll say like, okay, well, what's happening in the story here? Cause that will guide me to like figuring out what I want to do in the mechanics. Like it's just an, an instinct. Um, where I tend to start is what do I want the experience to be? And, and, and a lot of times there isn't necessarily a story. There might be a setting, there might be a world, but it's like, I want a heart pounding, you are racing for the getaway car uh, sort of feel like a heist has gone wrong and you're all running and you have five minutes to make it work. 
And so that might be where I start. So Mike, maybe it's a heist, maybe it's not, you know, maybe, but I'm like, I want fast pace. And then that to me will, will guide decision-making. Um, I have a game that came out last fall called Mountains of Madness from Yellow, which is a Lovecraft game. And I got the idea for it because I was trying to coordinate a bunch of international offices to work on one project and everyone spoke English, but as a second language and everyone was on a different time zone and everyone was from a different culture and different cultures have different expectations of how meetings work or when you say yes or when you say no or if you promise something and you can't deliver it what do you do do you say hey i couldn't deliver it like every everyone has like you know all the different social obligations so we would have a meeting and then everyone would be like yeah this is what we're doing and then four days later or three days later nothing that we had talked about happened because of all of the like language barriers time barriers and cultural barriers and I said, I feel like I'm going crazy. Like we all talked about the same thing and then the thing we talked about didn't happen and I cannot figure out why. And that gave me the idea for a Cthulhu game where the object of the game is you have 30 seconds for everyone to decide which cards you wanna play and then you just play the cards that you agreed on. And, but I put in restrictions cause you're going mad and I put in a timer and I do some other things. And that was the, idea for the game was going crazy felt like making a plan and then you look at it and you go we just talked about this and no one did anything we said what is going on like that you don't trust reality anymore so that wasn't really a story and it wasn't really a mechanic it was like a, a feeling and a lot of times that's what i where that's the thing that gets me excited like oh i want to make a game that makes you feel that way it's really a neat way to look at it yeah, um, I've heard a lot about that game and I've, I've wanted to try it, but I uh, hadn't had a chance yet. But um, I know in Mansions of Madness, there's like some of those, you know, when, when a character goes insane, they have to do that. My wife actually was playing that with us and she couldn't speak, but we had never played that part <laughs> and we didn't know. And so it's like, I think your game's great because it kind of lets players know, but no one at the table knew that that was even a possibility in the game. And then she just quits talking and nobody knows what's going on. And we're like, are you okay, baby? Like, how are you? No. She looked mad. <laughs> she was real mad. So, but yeah, I mean, we kind of experienced that same thing trying to communicate, you know, with, with these crazy things going on in that game. So I think that's, that's something that I'd really like to give a try. I mean, is it um, made to be like just a party game or is there more to it than that? Uh, it's, there's more to it than a party game. It's, it's a, it's an interesting hybrid and I think it's, it's done fine and the reviews are fine. I think a lot of people, if you want a party game, there's a little too much thinking in it. And if you want a strategy game, there's a little too much party in it, I think. Like, I delight in being like, it's a it's a strategic party game is what it yeah. is. Yeah, no, there's more to it. You have, to, you have, like, only so many leadership tokens and you have to decide when to use them and when you call for a rest, which lets you reshuffle and when you decide to go for the victory condition versus gather more resources. So you've got some strategy and then once per turn for 30 seconds you flip a sand timer and everyone goes crazy from their insanity and like i mean that's the thing is you have 30 seconds to decide what your cards you're playing but it might be that i only talk to the person on my left and someone else only whispers and someone else um you know turns their back to the table during those 30 seconds and you're still trying to have a conversation yeah it sounds pretty crazy yeah that sounds pretty interesting i know you're working on all these different games and you're heavily involved with the or i guess it's your game the ultimate werewolf legacy uh yeah okay yeah um ultimate werewolf is a game by bezier games 
Ted Alsbach, you know, is the designer and he brought me in and said, I want to do a legacy version. And I had sort of pioneered the legacy genre. So that was a marriage where I really was the storyteller working around it. I helped sort of like structure, here's what I've learned works with legacy. Here's what I've learned doesn't work. And some of my, most of my ideas were good. And sometimes like, sorry, that was a bad idea. Um, and so he really worked on getting the mechanics of what happens in each game. And then I worked on a story to kind of tie it all together and also the structure of, well, how many games and how does winning not lead to winning? And it was very interesting with Ultimate Werewolf because you might be a villager in two games and then a werewolf in the next. So you don't want to end a game and give like a bonus to villagers because you might not be a villager in the next game. So the thing about legacy games is how do you reward, how do you get people to want to win but not make it that winning leads to more winning and you don't want people like, you don't want to ever have a reason like someone's like, I'm going to deliberately lose five games so that in six game, game six, I'm unstoppable. Right. And so I helped like kind of work out a bunch of like sort of the structure of it and the story around it. It's not a particularly deep story on purpose. It's, it's a little tongue in cheek because this is a, a game about, you know, deciding who you're going to kill in the village. And then somehow... We needed to make it that in the next game, everyone was, not, you know, sort of back to life or like forgot, like, wasn't that guy a werewolf last year? <laughs> um, right. So we had to like find like this is where the story comes in. Like we had to pick a tone that was kind of a little breezy and storytelling esque as opposed to factual. I'd listened to an interview you did with someone. I can't remember now who it was, but. Um, uh, talking about betrayal legacy and how I heard you say that the house was basically the character. Um, is there something there for Ultimate Werewolf that like are, are we following the village itself or the characters in the village? I was working on them sort of in parallel, and both of them ended up having the same thing where each chapter. Well, first of all, they're called chapters, and second of all, each chapter focuses on. In Betrayal Legacy, it's the next generation. It goes forward like roughly 25 years. And in Werewolf uh, Legacy, it you, you kind of do these little chapters where you do a couple years in a row, and then you do the next chapter, and it's a couple years in a row. But both of them sort of follow the uh, sort of one follows a house and one follows a village, and then there are families, and then the families sort of get reputation. So there's... If you play both of them, you're like, well, I can see how the same guy worked on these at the same time because they, they have like they're distant cousins from each other. I try not to do too much that overlaps, but also um, I think the number of people who play Ultimate Werewolf Legacy and Betrayal Legacy, there's a pretty small overlap between them. Um, so hopefully people won't feel like they got the same thing twice. I don't. Either of those games finished, or where are they at in their um, development? Both of them, uh, Ultimate Werewolf Legacy is off to the manufacturer, um, and Betrayal Legacy, I ha is will be off to the manufacturer very shortly. Within a few weeks, I have a number of cards and books and things that are there's a, they're being laid out and they're being proofed, and all the members of the teams are looking at them and oh, this needs to be bold, and this needs to be italic, or now that I look at it, this card could change this way and you know be a little cleaner. So we're at that stage. So both of them, I'm done, um, you know, most of the work. One is done completely and one will be done within a few weeks. Um, when are they releasing, do you know? Uh, I believe Ultimate Werewolf Legacy 
is Gen Con. That's mostly Ted's project. Okay. He was very generous to call me a co-designer. I was more like a consultant who came in. So I believe it. that's out at Gen Con. And then uh, Betrayal Legacy will be in the fall. I'm not sure if it's October or November. I mean, I'm guessing they're going to try to get it close to Halloween. But I, I, they don't have an exact date yet. Moving back to Fireball Island. I know you've you mentioned in the past that you like to or you have put some Easter eggs and some little hidden, you know, inside joke kind of things in your games before, um, especially in Betrayal Legacy. Are there is there anything like that in Fireball Island? Have you got any little hidden tidbits, flavor text or anything like that that's a reference to another game or anything like that? Um, little bits. We're still working on the exact like I said, the cards are the last thing that we're doing. So some of them are still like name goes here. Right, or we have placeholder names, and then within we're we're just planning for the launch of the Kickstarter, and that will help tighten us up the card names. And then once the Kickstarter is up and running, we'll be finalizing like all the cards and all the art for the cards and everything like that. And I'm sure we will slip a few in, but no, this doesn't have as many. It's got like a cartoony sense of humor. It's got like an '80s cartoon sense of humor. Like the the plot is you're not an adventurer anymore on this island. You're a tourist who's been dropped down. You've been promised a day of adventure. And you certainly are getting that, but not in a safe way that you signed up for. You're getting like, hey, yeah, yeah, give us 20 bucks. You'll come to our island. It'll be great. And then you land and the helicopter takes off and you're you're thinking, this is not not safe. And you just start running around in, in terror. Uh, so we're kind of just having some campy fun with it. That sounds fun for sure. Somebody asked if you could give advice to an expiring designer, what would it be? What kind of advice would you, would you give? Cause you know, especially with Kickstarter out, you know, all these smaller companies or individual people designing games, you know, what would, what would be some good advice for them? If you're brand new to the industry, I'd be careful of Kickstarter. Not that Kickstarter is bad, but I think a lot of people think that hey, I made a game and now I just put it up on Kickstarter and then get a pot of money and then hit print somewhere and people get games. And there's a huge amount of work in getting a Kickstarter started and then doing the fulfillment after. So just be careful. Um, I think I, I tend to give a little bit of different advice to this question, which is I think people who want to be a game designer have to ask themselves, what, are they, what does that mean to them about being a game designer? Does it mean being a full-time make a living, pay your mortgage or your rent game designer? Or does it mean you make a game and you play it with your friends and they all like it? And that's all it ever goes, right? Like those are two different extremes. Um, And there's a lot of places in between. And I think people have this idea that if you have a published game, you're a full-time designer and that there's very few people who make a living at it full time. I'm lucky enough to be one of them. It takes a lot of work. It takes a little bit of luck and it took working at Hasbro for 14 years to figure out how to do it. Um, I still work 60 or 70 hour weeks uh, to do so. So what I tell people is if you wanna be a game designer, maybe uh, like you could look at and say, I would like to make a game. I'd like to make X games uh, amount of games a year and I would like X amount of those to be published and, and really ask yourself what that is. Cause like maybe you have a job you really like and it's good hours and then you can make games like on nights and weekends. And if you sell one a year and it gets published, you make enough money to have like a nice vacation 
or put some money aside or it supplements it. But also, if you don't feel like making a game, just don't make it. Just do other stuff, like just play games. Um, I think the idea is if there's a lot of time that people don't realize that like when it becomes your full-time job, you know, if I get up in the morning and I'm like, well, I don't feel like making a game today. It's like, well, I got to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. It's like, I don't have any good ideas today. Like, well, come up with one. Um, that, it, that it, when it becomes a job, all the things that are part of a job come with it. Yeah. And, and so uh, just ask yourself if you're an aspiring game designer, like, what does that mean to me? Do I want to be published? Do I want to self-publish? Do I want to do one game a year? Do I want to do a game whenever the mood suits me? Do I want to make... 30 games but never have them published but just have them in my shelf and know that they're good games right do i want to like what does it mean to you what are your goals for it and that's i think something that people don't necessarily ask they just say oh i want to make a game which is great but if you want to make a game make a game and then you say i want to make another game or what do you want to do with that game and if you don't know that's also fine like i don't know i just want to make a game like okay just make a game but don't necessarily think i want to make a game and then a year from now i want to have five games in print and be making a full-time living at it because that might not be what you actually want yeah i don't i don't personally think it's a problem like you probably don't have to give out your advice to aspiring designers since we had over five thousand games i think were added to board game geek last year so i think we're doing pretty good in the game designer department at the moment you know yeah, there's a lot of people who are getting games published, which is great. Um, it puts a lot of pressure on all of us to make great games. What do y'all do to make yourself stand out? Have you had to up your like marketing game tremendously? It seems like there's been just a crazy influx of games, you know, the last four to five years. Publisher side of it, have their tactics had to really change in response to that? Or is it all kind of business as usual? No, it's different in that it's a little bit more of a summer blockbuster. Like if you have a game... There are a few every year that get buzz and have legs, right? And just sort of sell. But it used to be 10 years ago, if you had a game that came out and it got buzz, it would continue to buzz and it would be a, a really good seller for a couple quarters or like six quarters, like a year and a half. And then it would start to die down. And now that might not be six months. That might be six weeks before people move to the, the next big thing. So you have to think like, why would someone pick up my game off the shelf and play it? who what other games do they like right so i can that they would choose mine and why would they pick my game over the other games that they already like and know how to play and so you do have to have a marketing hat on even as a designer if you want to be a published person who makes a living at it if you, again if you just want to make like make a game and it goes out and it sells 4000 copies um that's lovely i have some games that go out and they sell 4000 copies and but I'm also trying to think like, well, how is it going to be different? How is it going to stand out? How is it going to look on a shelf? What's the name? Who's the audience? Does it play two players? Does it play one player? Does it play six players? What's the difference? Like I, you put a lot of, I put a lot of questions uh, into the, from the very beginning, I ask a lot of questions of, um, okay, there's four or 5,000 games coming out this year. What makes mine worth talking about? And you know, sometimes it's, I'm going to do a Cthulhu game that's kind of like a party game. That's that's different. Now, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to succeed, but at least it's a point of difference. Yeah. Is, is that how you thought about the Legacy games? Um, yeah, I was at Hasbro at the time, so that was 
a, a completely different mindset. And also the market was a little different when I thought of it because that was like eight or nine years ago. But it's sort of mm-hmm. it's sort of how I think about things now. If I'm starting another project, I do a lot of analysis of, well, not a lot. It's not like I sit down with spreadsheets, but I give thought like, oh, I want to work on this. Okay, is there an audience? How big is the audience? How much time will it take me? Am I excited by it? Do I like it? Is it just something that, is it close enough to what I've done that people who see my name on the box will expect it to do something? Or is it too much like what I've done where it's just another thing that's the same thing? So, so and anyway, these are just some of the things I think about when I start a project. Well, what would you say is the, the game that you had the most fun designing? The most fun still might be, and I wasn't the original designer, the only designer, but I, I did a lot of work on Betrayal at House on the Hill uh, back in 2000. The idea came in from an inventor, Bruce Glasgow, and ended up on my desk at Hasbro. And I spent about 18 months working on it, doing some design revisions and some development and some figure out. And I was relatively new at my job then, and so I didn't realize that I had worked on a lot of Hasbro games that were more lightweight. And I was like, ooh, you can design like this at this depth? And it was like that first time. Now, I have worked on other games that I've had a very good time with and games that I've had more success success with or been better known for. But that was the one that was like, oh, wow, I get to go to work and get paid for this? Like, for the first time. It's like that first love. It's like when you first start dating someone like that new feeling of whoa this is amazing so when you talk about the most fun it was betrayal because that kind of opened opened your designs up to that kind of depth of board games yeah it just opened my eyes i was like wow wow this is cool and it was like it was challenges that i didn't know how to solve and like i didn't know how to cost it i didn't know how to explain it i didn't know how to write the rules i didn't there are all these things i didn't know how to do and then i was like solving them and I'm like, ooh, this is fun. I'm doing the thing. I'm There's problems and I'm coming up with solutions. Look at me, right? And so it was like the first time I really did that at that level. And um, it was fun. Well, um, what's next? What, what are you doing next for like with Restoration Games? Can you give us any spoilers or any sneak peeks? Uh, well, we've got, we've, now uh, we got Dinosaur Tea Party coming out and our, our biggest game last year was Downforce. And we have a Downforce expansion coming out called danger circuit that'll be out this summer and and all of our attention has been on fireball island we've had some other games that we were trying to start and do them in parallel and they're all just kind of waiting on a shelf uh for fireball to do its thing and then we'll be like whoa now we're late on those uh, but what those are we're not mentioning yet because they're too early and sometimes we just abandon projects i do it all the time it, with restoration or an original design you get pretty far and you go now this just, this just isn't it, right? Like before we start spending real money on art and tools and marketing, I don't, I don't think we got a winner here and you just walk away. So that's why I don't talk about stuff too early because then if you do walk away, people are like, what happened? What happened to that thing? And you're like, nothing. That's just, it happens to everything when you design games. Some of them don't work. I got, I got one question and it's, it's a simple question, but I, I, I 
would like to know what color do you pick when you play games is there a favorite color green oh green that's what i like to hear that's that's what i was hoping you would say that's not what he was hoping you would say he literally (laughs) said that if he doesn't say green we're not doing the the show (laughs) that's what he said yeah you're just you're just that's it you're just shelving this he's like there's only one answer yeah and it's funny i i didn't have a particular color maybe when i was a kid it was i actually remember very much like looking at my Candyland board at age three or four and it was blue green then red then yellow that was the order it was very clear the priority that you had so green was second there um i don't think i had a strong preference until i got to hasbro when the guy who hired me always played red my immediate boss always played blue and another guy always played yellow and i went well i'll play green i like green green's fine now 20 years later I don't know how I could ever be anything other than green, right? It's just a ridiculous thought. So it got kind of imprinted into me. And when I run into someone else who's also a green player and we're at the table, it's like, uh uh-oh. They'll stare at each other. (laughs) Well, I'll be like, you know what? I'll play whatever color. And then halfway through the game, I'll be like, oh, wait, no, I'm red. Sorry. (laughs) I have just spent the past five minutes evaluating the board as if I were green. Yeah. That's, that's, That's my problem, too. I always go for green. And when I'm not, I don't i look at the board completely wrong yeah uh, I, th- I thought you were gonna say you threw a temper tantrum either way yeah yeah <laughs> that's why I, I prefer green but i never get to play it when i'm playing with ryan because he snatches it first chance i you know like how if you're really into pool you get your own cue and if you're in a bowling you get your own bowling ball i think i just want to be able to roll in with my little like attache case of all these green colors <laughs> like custom made and painted like what are we what are we playing with cubes and meeples and discs yeah, yeah i get that <laughs> i got it i got that i'll make that happen some sort of green camouflage or snake skin yeah. just like throw them out there <laughs> yeah i just got like okay we can both play green because i got mine tricked out <laughs> sounds like a pretty good plan i know people I, yeah i know people do that when monopoly pieces so i was always the car the car that was the top hat. That was a little. That was a little guy yeah. on the statue, like the guy on the horse. You know, the guy on the horse. Whatever he was, I think he was a statue. Mm-hmm. He was a statue. Was that my wife has an opinion? What were you? I was the ship. She was the. Sh- my wife was the ship. The ship. No crossovers. So. I know. Yeah. We could all play Monopoly together. Oh yeah. There we go. We don't have to make it awkward when we do. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to fight over the pieces. Yeah. Which I, you know, I. I told my wife that I was in, we was going to interview today. I said, yeah, he was a. Uh, we watched that. She watched that documentary about Monopoly. Yep. I said, yeah, he's he was one of the judges. I thought I think he's one of the judges that does the Monopoly judges. And she's like, what? Are you serious? Like she was excited about that. I, I haven't done that in a little while. I think yeah, <laughs> uh, eight eight nine years yeah. now. Uh, but I did it three or four times. I forgot I was in a documentary. I've never seen it. Yeah, we, we watched it the other day, and I I thought that was just funny when I was looking up and I noticed you did that. Yep. Oh yeah. So me and Ryan are both going to Dice Tower Con again this year, and um, you're supposed to be like the guest of honor, right? The keynote speaker. I, I am the guest of honor. Yeah, I don't know if I have to give a keynote speech, but I'm happy to do so if they ask me. It's a uh, it's a couple months in the future, so it's not necessarily my radar. I've got three or four conventions between now and then that I'll be going to. And I backed the either the digital or virtual version of. Okay, yeah, that's that's my next big one. I'm definitely the keynote speaker. What's that called? Uh oh, you're putting me on the spot. It's wait. The tabletop network is that what it's called? Tabletop network. Yeah, I was. I just had to look at my notes. Tabletop Network, which is sort of like a hands-on workshop for like when you ask like how what do you have advice to give to designers? It's like two days of that. 
Um, yeah. So more in depth. So I'm giving the keynote speech there. Let me ask, what would you want to hear? What would I want to hear? Because uh, I don't have a topic yet. Yeah. If you're you're you you backed it digitally, what do you want me to get up and talk about? I guess just the initial process because me and my wife have actually worked on a few little designs and they've went horrible they've went terrible <laughs> like they start out so innocent and easy and then just that that initial hump like how do you get over that you know having the idea kind of fleshing it out and then like when you get stuck like you know where do you go from there because that would be my that's been my personal experience of we just had this idea of this little simple card game, you know, and we were going to use a deck of like a standard 52 card deck and like alter it in some way. And oh my God, that was like, we just, we played this game maybe 20 times and like halfway through it, Lauren, my wife, she's just like, this is just bad. <laughs> I was like, I know it is. It's terrible. We just, we just quit. You know, we just couldn't, we just went on to something else. It, it actually sounds <laughs> like you were doing every single thing right, which is, come up with a simple idea and keep playing it and say, this is bad. What it sounds like <laughs> you didn't do is, okay, but was the original idea good? And what is the one thing in here that's actually yeah. fun? And then find that and then be like, okay, well, how do we do more of the one fun thing? Hmm. Yeah. There was probably something fun in there. I don't know. Maybe not that one. Maybe there was nothing fun. Okay. Then you did, you say, well, it was just a bad idea. Yeah. And you let's think of a different one. It just seemed like it was going to be so easy to begin with. I think that's a lot of people's misconception. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's it's it is very very fast and easy to make an awful game. Yeah, <laughs> I, I could have one for you within an hour. Right. I no, I could have one with you in ten minutes, twenty minutes if you want graphics that are equally as bad. <laughs> right. Um. It is it is pretty difficult to make an okay game, and it is a combination of stubbornness experience and luck to make a good game i can only imagine like just i'm sure i wouldn't call it i'll call it writer's block or board game block i'm sure that happens quite a bit where you got something you're thinking about and you just can't connect the two lines somehow you know i, I can see that being being really tough yeah and you weren't to ask yourself questions what problem am i trying to solve here yeah when was this game last fun right and then you go like oh i'm trying to solve this i'm trying to solve this and you're like wait I'm trying to solve a problem based on something that I added two versions ago to solve a different problem. So maybe the thing I added two versions ago was a bad idea. So I have to mentally go back four versions and solve that original problem in a different way so that that solution doesn't cause the problem that I'm trying to solve now. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that sounds mind-boggling. Yeah, I come from an IT background, so that sounds pretty <laughs> familiar <laughs> when you're writing programs and stuff. It's just it's just debugging. It's it, it's just the like you you solve one problem to get 99 more. Then you get 99 more, and then you're like you get halfway through and you go, wait, I should have been doing this entirely different. I have structured all of the I passing too many variables. I'm doing all sorts of stuff that's just kind of sloppy. I need to back up and take a different approach, but that's hard. And I have to go all the way back there. So let me continue to patch this. Right. And, and I think experience comes from game design. It's like, nope, I just got to back this all the way up. Yeah, I, th I think that would probably be one of the hardest things for new designers. It just is knowing when to stop and when to walk away or when to stop and when to backtrack, you know. Well, and how to fix things by making them smaller, not bigger. Yeah, everybody wants to be bigger, grander, you know. Well, you know, you just, a lot of game design is patches. 
And you're like, yeah, yeah. But on the first turn, you don't do that. Why? Well, because it unbalances it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's just a patch. Like you had a bad idea and then it doesn't work in the first turn. So you said, here's the rule, but don't do it the first turn. And sometimes you need that. But a lot of times it's like, well, can't we just start on the second turn then when I can do that? Right? Like you have to figure out how to make the game work without having exceptions and patches and you do this you just accept this card does this and then when you tie we go to this whole other negotiating board over here and it's like really why can't we just tie right like you, the idea is to keep adding things to take care of weird areas and then nothing hangs together and it's hard to design smaller and i'm from a guy who designs big so yeah, it gets real clunky. You can just you can just feel it when you're playing a game when it's just you're like, wow, this is. People use the word streamlined. You know, throw that around all the time, and I think that's you know, I feel like that's kind of like the the mode of the industry now. Everybody wants everything to be just smooth and you know, just really easy and flow well. Right. And then when you see this game that's just like you said, it just seems like you know all these different little boards and added on. It just it almost sticks out in today's games. It's just real clunky and fidgety. I don't know the word. Yeah, it's and there's also this thing that I think comes from game design, which is, I mean, comes from experience. Game design is you don't you don't have to. And as a matter of fact, you shouldn't design everything in the game before you sit down to play it. And I think some people, I might start a game next week or two weeks from now, where I'm going to sit down with literally nothing how to play and just start playing with cards. It's like this card has a four. It's better than your three, right? And and just almost make up the game by playing it. And so now, like, when I'm designing or co-designing, you know, we're like, okay, we do this and we fight and who wins? I do. Why? Because I have an elephant. Okay, so you won because you have an elephant, right? And, like, we know that there's going to be a whole combat system in there and armies are going to matter and it's going to be... But, like, we don't care yet. Like, we just want to... We're testing something else. So it's like, I got an elephant piece. Okay, cool. You won. So, right? And I think people would know, like, I need to have the combat and I need to have the economy and I need to have this and I need to have the secondary tiebreaker in place and I need to have the 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 drafting deck and it's like you don't please don't have all those in place because most of those ideas will be thrown away and you'll get really disheartened if you spent 40 years 40 years 40 hours making that prototype and then you realize well nothing here worked and then you're never going to revise it but if you spent 30 minutes to test part of it then you're like okay that kind of worked most of this didn't work but that worked okay and you do 30 minutes and you test something and so on and so forth. So you, you, these these tricks that you learn, it's a craft. And you learn the shortcuts and the tricks. And then you still drive yourself into a ditch and come up with bad ideas. So you don't think you can play test too often? Is kind of what you're saying? Well, you can because, you. I mean, the other side is you can then get burnt out, right? But you can play test a lot faster mm -hmm. and more often than people who are starting out think. They think, like, I need to have it done and I need to do nice graphics. Mm -hmm. And I got all the clip art and I made all these pieces and I did this. And I put it in the box and I wrote up the rules and let me explain the game and the drafting mechanism. And then inevitably on the first turn, some will break it. They'll be like, well, so if I just do this, this, and this, don't I win? And you're like, oh, oh no. And all you're looking at is yeah. hours of cutting out all the materials and finding the clip art. You're like, no, 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 don't do that to yourself. Okay, this episode is releasing on April the 2nd. So that means the Kickstarter will be tomorrow. It starts tomorrow. If, you, if you're a person who downloaded this and listened to it on Monday, April 2nd, you need to remember that on Tuesday, April 3rd at noon Eastern time, you need to wander over to Kickstarter and at least check out Fireball Island. Preferably back it. 
Oh yeah. Preferably with all the expansions. <laughs> but I'm I am horribly biased. Yeah, that was one thing I wanted to ask. Is is it going to be just the base game and then expansions, or is there like a deluxe version? A lot of a lot of Kickstarters have like multiple versions of the game. Like how how is it structured? It's going to be the base version for sixty, or base version and all three expansions for one hundred and thirty. There may be add-ons as we unlock them, where you could trick out your figures, or you could do this, or you could do that. So you could sort of buy your way to a deluxe version. But we're not entirely sure. We're still getting some quotes in from from hong kong and we're not sure like what people are going to want in kickstarter so I, not all of those will come but yeah there's a there's a very very good chance in there if you want to get the deluxe version then along the way you could be like i want this and i want this and i want this and and we will do our best to let you sort of piecemeal your way to the deluxe version i gotta tell you though this the the off the shelf version is pretty deluxe it comes in a box that you can live in. Um, it's actually not quite that big, but it, it comes in a decent sized box and it's a huge game and it's, it's, it's cool. I like it. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Oh, that, that was a question I was going to ask earlier. You kept talking about how short the original game was compared to people's like memory of it. They've kind of you know, glamorized it. Um, how tall is the, the island? Uh, the original island is two and a half inches tall. Ours is over five inches tall. Do you have to like put it together every time you play, or does it? Just... Uh, yeah, I mean it's three pieces. You literally put down two drays, and then you put the third one on top. And the biggest mistake you'll make is you go, oh nope, that's backwards on top, and then you put it the other way. Other than that, other than that, you should be able to handle it real fast. That sounds great. Well, okay. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, thank you. And um, I wish you the best of luck to your Kickstarter. All right. Thank you. Bye. All right, just want to make a few announcements before we sign off. This coming up week, we're going to get a chance to try out Imperial Spells and Steam, which is a game from Level 99 Games. We're going to get to play with Brad Talton, the designer and publisher at Level 99 Games. We're going to be playing with him over Tabletop Simulator. This game should be hitting Kickstarter pretty soon. It says spring of 2018. But we're pretty excited about getting a chance to play this game before... It hits the Kickstarter, and we'll be doing a full review. Probably be a YouTube video with some of our gameplay. We're excited about that. It'll be our first official um, Who Shuffled video on YouTube. And so it's going to be a review, basically, of the game. And we're going to have that in the mix. And then next week, we're also going to be talking about um, some changes that we're going to be making to the show. We might change the format up again uh, pretty significantly. Also, I want to give a special thanks to the Waycross Gaming community for giving me some questions, suggestions for our interview here with Rob and the board game group on Facebook for doing the same thing. If anyone would like to submit questions for us to answer on the show, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Who Shuffled. Also, our website is whoshuffled.com. Got links to all of our social media pages there. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, stitcher anywhere that podcasts can be found but that's going to wrap up the show so until next week i'm tom tanner and i'm ron hutchison thanks for listening to who shuffled find us on twitter and facebook at who shuffled